Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Movies and a Meal, a podcast where we talk about movies and other things while we eat. I'm your co-host Ben. First of all, I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving and I hope your holiday went well. This week you're going to hear two movie reviews, both from Keith. Those two movies are The Holdovers and Saltburn. I'm going to let Keith jump into more detail about what these movies are about and who's starring in them, but here we go. So first up, The Holdovers. In my family, we have a tradition running back as long as I can remember. No matter what kind of feast we have, this year, really, Paella, engineered by my dad, we always squeeze in a theater movie if there's one we all want to see. And so this year, we all agreed on Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, and I'm certainly glad we did. It's a certain kind of family movie itself, and slyly, even a pretty great holiday movie too. And just the kind of human movie that Payne has rightly pointed out we don't see often enough anymore. In Payne's latest offering and his first feature film in six years, with a whip-smart script from David Hemmingson, we meet curmudgeonly Professor Paul Hunnam, played by Paul Giamatti, a bitter cuss of a man as we first meet him. Still teaching at Barton, the New England boarding school where he was a student long ago, he now berates his students and co-workers constantly, to the point where he has very few friends left. Because he's such a campus pariah, he's forced to babysit the titular holdovers, a group of five students who are forced to spend the winter break on campus because their parents don't pick them up. Through really the only contrivance in this otherwise tightly and smartly plotted tale, it's soon down to Professor Hunnam, lone kitchen worker Mary, and the only student who has to stick it out for the entire break, and that's when Payne's movie really gets going. It's funny throughout, and I've always been a sucker for great stories about misfit students and their mentors, and that's exactly what this is at its core, but it's also so much more. Set in the 70s, it slowly develops into a real holiday crowd-pleaser that never turns to cloying sentimentality, as our three heroes go on an emotional journey that packs as much of a punch as it does laughs throughout. And it certainly helps that this is Paul Giamatti's best part in years. And he's matched here by a powerful performance from one of my very favorites, Divine Joy Randolph as Mary, and a truly electrifying debut from Dominic Sessa as the rebellious student Angus Tully. Giamatti's Hunnam, in particular, could have been a one-note role, just delivering bitter zingers all around. But Giamatti gives the character multiple layers for us to dive into, and it's a delight to watch. It's an even better part than Payne gave him for one of his very first roles in Sideways, and so an interesting bookend. And mild spoiler alert, in case you can't tell, I think The Holdovers is an even better film. Randolph is every bit as equal here, but in an understated performance that gives the movie its emotional core. Thankfully, this is one period piece where we don't get montages of protests to set the scene. Instead, the death of Mary's son, a Barton grad who died fighting in Vietnam, hangs over the entire movie in a much more impactful way, and guides every step of Randolph's remarkable performance. You can feel in every frame how hard it is for her to navigate through the world laden with so much grief. It makes for some of my favorite scenes among many great ones, in which Mary and Paul slowly bond over whiskey and viewings of the newlywed game. But this trio wouldn't work at all, of course, without a rebellious young misfit, and Cessa is a real find in, yes, his first movie role ever. Fittingly, his Angus Tully starts off a bit one note, but evolves gradually and in perfect time with the movie. Cessa is destined to become a star, as he gives heft to both the snarky humor of Tully and his own genuine pain as he and Hunnam square off. They all go on pretty remarkable journeys for a tight two-hour movie, but don't let the bitterness and grief that are need powerful here scare you away. You can tell that Payne and Hemmingson love these characters, and you will too. It's exactly my kind of movie, a human saga about three people at very distinct chapter breaks in their lives, who come together in a genuine and heartwarming, but never cloying, way. My understanding is this one, in our weird new world of movie releases, will only get a six-week wide theatrical run, and by my math, we're already in week four. Even with that slim window, this one will, I think, keep catching on. It's just that good. Because though it's often a bitter movie, it's never a cynical one. And along with the last, we get three people who come together not with predictable plot twists, but through the unpredictability of life. And for that, I'll give the holdovers four stars and just say catch this one on the big screen while you still can. As anyone who listens to this podcast knows, and I know there are at least some of you out there, I was looking forward to Saltburn as one of the top movies I wanted to see for this fall laden with Art House Fair. So it brings me little pleasure to say this is a misfire from Emerald Fennell. 
I'm a fan of for her work of Killing Eve, and of course her stunning debut movie, Promising Young Woman, which has so much more to say than this mostly empty spectacle. Just what is Saltburn about? That's hard to say too much about before the spoiler lid comes off, but in it we meet Oliver Quick, a scholarship student at Oxford who clearly doesn't fit in with the privileged blue bloods who make up most of the student body. Through a meet cute we find out much more about later, he meets one of those students, the seductively charming Felix Catton, who adopts Quick into his elite campus clique. That duo certainly helps to make the first two thirds of this movie entirely seductive itself. Barry Keegan, already one of my favorites, plays Riser Oliver with his usual vigor. He dives into the role completely to keep us guessing what's really going on until Fennell, unfortunately, makes it blaringly obvious. And Jacob Elordi, who played Elvis and Sofia Coppola's Priscilla this year and is of course well known to fans of Euphoria, gives Felix equal doses of charm and wounded ego to make us want to go along on the journey to the titular Saltburn, the family estate he invites Oliver to to spend the summer break with his family. And before and once they reach Saltburn, there's a lot to like in Fennell's new movie. Keegan and Elordi are fun to watch as they equal parts bond and spar, and the world of Saltburn is at least visually a wonder, filmed in various hues by cinematographer Linus Sangren. It is a genuine gothic mystery, and the first two thirds also helped along by an often wickedly funny script from Fennell and fun performances all around. Rosamund Pike is a delight as Felix's dim but oddly engaging mother, Elspeth, and Richard E. Grant, a true treasure, is even better as Felix is completely estranged from reality father, Sir James. Yes, there are several scenes throughout designed to shock, but really this fish-out-of-water tale had been going for a long time instead through his genuine humor and other fun performances from Alison Oliver as Felix's sister Venetia, and even a drop-in by promising young woman star Carrie Mulligan as a seriously named poor dear Pamela. So that's the good, but when does it fall apart? Let's just say Fennell doesn't just not stick the landing. She turns it into a thoroughly disappointing and unfortunately equally predictable crash and burn. So before I get into that, if you haven't seen Saltburn, and don't let me stop you from doing so, stop listening now if you don't want major spoilers. As I at least figured out about a third of the way in, this movie owes a humongous debt to the work of Patricia Highsmith and to one far superior movie in particular based on her work, The Town of Mr. Ripley. I'm indeed a big fan of that one, so I didn't need to see it played out once again in the last third of this movie with nothing new to add. It ultimately betrays just how empty of a spectacle Saltburn is. Though it indeed strives hard to be iconoclastic and shocking, and indeed sometimes is, there's nothing new or even inventive in the last third of this movie, which almost managed to completely ruin all the good that came before it for me. If you really need to take a message away from Saltburn, I suppose it could be a cautionary tale for extremely rich folks about the dangers of interacting with those they find to be beneath them. But really, don't think that much about this one. I love Promising Young Woman, so I'll definitely go along for the ride to see what Fennell cooks up next. But Saltburn is an unfortunate disappointment that could have been so much better. For that mix of a pretty thoroughly enticing first two-thirds but equally empty final chapter, I'll give Saltburn two and a half stars. So that's it for this week. As always, you can reach us at moviesandamealog at gmail.com. Movies and a Meal on X slash Twitter. And do give us a listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And thanks for listening.